Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. My guests in the studio today are Roberta Golenkoff and Kathy Hirsch-Pasek. Dr. Golenkoff is the Unidel H. Rodney Sharp Professor of Education, Professor of Linguistics and Cognitive Science, and Professor of Psychological and Brain Science at the University of Delaware. Dr. Hirsch-Pasek is the Stanley and Deborah Lefkowitz Distinguished Faculty Fellow in the Department of Psychology at Temple University and a Senior Fellow in the Center for Universal Education at Brookings. They are longtime collaborators and co-authors of the new book from the American Psychological Association titled, Becoming Brilliant, What Science Tells Us About Raising Successful Children. Stay tuned in this episode for Wessel's Economic Update on Forecasting the U.S. Economy. Roberta and Kathy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. It's great to be here. I referred to uh, the term psychology three times in that introduction. (laughs) So who is the audience for this book? Roberta, do you want to start? It's not psychologists like us, although we think they'll read it too. It's for parents and practitioners and teachers and anybody who has been a little miffed with our current educational system going so narrow. It's about math and reading, and then it's about math and reading. And we think this curriculum is far too narrow for children to succeed in the 21st century. So we made suggestions in the book about the things that parents can do outside of the child's school hours to augment what they're getting at school. So it's not just for teachers. It's for teachers and parents and anybody interested in raising successful children. I would say uh, any stakeholders in children. There are a lot of them out there. I mean, there are a lot of businesses. There are a lot of nonprofits that are involved with children. And there's parents. Many of us are parents and and we also have a profession. So I think it's really about those people who are looking for another way to raise children and to get out of the muck of all of this, you must learn this now kind of thinking. And the testing. Well, Kathy, let me ask you this. Uh, the, the model and the book are structured on what you identify as the six C's. Yeah. Uh, you, identify, you define them as the key skills that will help all children become the thinkers and entrepreneurs of tomorrow as the roadmaps toward success. So briefly, what are the six C's? Well, the six C's are our way of distilling a whole lot of scientific literature in what's loosely called the science of learning. And they are skills that are interrelated, and they're skills that are measurable, and they're skills that are malleable. So what are they? Well, at the very base is collaboration, knowing how to get along with others, to work in teams, to form communities. Then built upon that is communication. Communication is everything from learning rich language, one or two languages. It's also about writing. It's also about reading. And critically, it's also about rhetoric and listening, a lost art in a Facebook world. We think everybody cares what we had for breakfast, but maybe not. Um, (laughs) Built on communication is content. It's still really important. You do have to master that reading. You do have to master math, science, social studies. But that's even not enough. We have to include in the arts, and we also have to include how to learn, called learning to learn. The fancy term for that is 
executive function skills, and it includes memory and planning, attention, and flexibility. Built on that is critical thinking because you can't have critical thinking if you have no content to critically think through. Built on that is creativity, which also oddly requires a lot of content. They say 10,000 hours of learning your trade before you're really creative in it. And then confidence. Confidence, which includes a growth mindset, which is knowing that you really can do it in the face of a challenge, and also grit, or the persistence to go on even when you fail. So we have collaboration, communication, content, critical thinking, creativity, and confidence. And I'd like to dive more deeply into a few of these sure. uh, later on. Uh, but first, uh, the book... Uh, presents a really interesting kind of short history of how we got to where we are today in terms of uh, educational pedagogy in, in the American system. Um, you have a short history uh, that starts with uh, Sputnik in 1957, and you come into the present and you include No Child Left Behind and the Common Core. Um, what's your basic critique of the American educational system? Well, there are so many wonderful teachers and schools out there that I would never give a blanket critique. But it is the case that starting with Sputnik, when we felt like we were falling behind in the sciences, we started to get, quote, more rigorous. Now, things were going along pretty well until No Child Left Behind. Even No Child Left Behind, which was conceived by George Bush and Ed, Ted Kennedy, were done with the best of intentions because they wanted to close the achievement gap and bring all children up to good standards. But the problem is the way it got implemented. It got implemented through these high-stakes tests and translated into um, putting children through their paces in the classroom as opposed to inviting them to think critically and to learn in a more open-ended and playful and joyful way. Uh, it's all about training children to succeed on the tests. And we have read, as most people who are listening to this broadcast have, around the country how various subjects have been dropped, for example, science in Florida at one point, so that reading and math could be emphasized. But reading and math alone will not help our children meet the demands of this crazy new world, which is changing every day under our feet. Though they are very important, and yes, you still do need yes, to master are. reading and math. So what we're not saying is that they're not important. We're just saying that they're one within a suite of skills that needs to be mastered. And I just wanted to add, when you ask about our education system, like many education systems around the world, we had trained teachers to teach, but we had not really trained people on how learners learn. And it's very important to do that little switch in the paradigm because if we begin to teach in ways that learners learn, then they will learn better. And it's one of the reasons, among many, many, that so many of our educational reforms have not really worked. They haven't taken hold. What we've, since, I guess, 1975, we had the education president, the nation at risk. I mean, time after time, we have these statements about the failing education system. And, um, and I think if we understood more about learning, we understood more about 
the globalization of the world, which is becoming smaller and smaller as we speak, the rush of technology, which is also a factor because it means that learning content like the monks did many centuries ago isn't going to be good enough, means we have to really be able to navigate what we learn, to be able to apply it to new problems we call transfer. So as we put all these factors in or all these ingredients into the soup, right now is the time when we can maximize how young children learn and, in fact, how they can become lifelong learners. I would add that uh, we are indeed psychologists and we relied heavily on the work of our colleagues around the world to write this book. The book is born from the science of learning and rooted in decades of research and child development. Uh, this is one of the things that distinguishes our book, perhaps, from other lists of skills that children require because we've developed a developmental model where each skill builds on itself and expands as we go through life and have positive experiences that help shape them. Right. You talk about uh, 21st century skills. You talk about hard skills. You talk about soft skills. Can you kind of unpack these different skill sets a little bit? Yeah, well, one of the things I think we're moving away from in the field is this distinction between the hard skills and the soft skills. You know, actually, the soft skills are really the hard ones, right? It's much harder to get a good human being who understands social behavior and is kind and caring and sensitive. Um, so what we're trying to do here is to really switch the paradigm by redefining success, now, on the one hand, in a traditional model, you can think of success as doing well on your reading test, your math test, and maybe your science and writing test. In our new system, I think we really do need to incorporate a breadth of skills. And so we'd suggest that what we really want, and we're borrowing this from uh, the Canadian educational revolution, which has taken place over the last uh, six to ten years. We love Canada. <laughs> is... Uh, is that you should be happy, healthy, caring, social, and thinking as a child so that you can become a collaborative, creative citizen in the society tomorrow. That this isn't really about individuals. It's about grooming societies of the future. I want to quote from the books. I love quoting from books when I interview authors. And one that really uh, stood out to me was, um, again, it's about the American education system, but it's about a lot more. And you write, for the first time in our memory, business leaders who think about their requirements for employees and child psychologists are talking the same language and look for the same benchmarks. Only our school system seems to be stuck somewhere in the agrarian societies of past centuries. That's painting with a broad brush about the education system. Can you, can you explain that? Sure. It is the case that many schools in America are still teaching for memorization, and that's because our teaching is shaped by the outcomes we seek. So if we have high-stakes tests, we have to teach children how to succeed on the high-stakes tests. Um, this is really a kind of educational system that our grandparents had. And you have to think about the world we're in now. We're in a Google and a wiki world where facts are at our fingertips. Now, this still doesn't mean that you don't want kids to learn the multiplication tables. Did you hear that, uh, Ruby, my daughter? Learn the multiplication <laughs> tables. 
<laughs> You've got to memorize those so you can offload things like that so you can think about deeper problems. But children need much more than just memorizing content that they will then be able to get on the web. We, we know second graders who can Google the tallest building in the world and get the answer in three minutes. What we need to do are train thinkers. I don't have to tell you that we have many serious problems in the world today. And we want our children to be able to attack these problems. And it will happen surely if they have content. But they also need critical thinking to analyze the problems and see where the gaps are and what they need to fix. And they'll also need communication and collaboration because these problems are really hard and will require that people work in teams. And finally, they're going to need confidence because nobody succeeds on the first try when it's a super complicated problem. And I'm afraid that the way we're teaching our children now is not with what Carol Dweck would call a growth mindset or Angela Duckworth grit, where you hang in there and persevere till you get it right. We learn so much from our failures. But rather, we're training children more to take these tests, and then they just feel awful when they fail. I think school systems developed to meet the needs of their times, and the times have changed. And as businesses realize that more of their interactions are going to be global, as they realize that they need creative thinkers and innovators, and as they realize that they need critical thinkers who can be problem solvers, then they have changed the game too by saying, if you graduate from school today and you don't have these characteristics, we're not going to hire you. So I think that drives the system as well. And I think we have to recognize that, you know, if knowledge really is doubling every two and a half years, just think about that. If we learned every fact in the book and did it well, in five years, we'd be down to, you know, 50 percent. So I think we have to realize it's a diminishing quality. And if it's a diminishing quality, then what are the skills that that a computer cannot do better than we do? Like collaboration, communication, critical thinking, creativity, confidence. That's right. So um, many of the computer programs that exist today will be expanded. And more and more of the jobs that are present today will go by the boards. There's a a book by uh, two MIT business guys called Race Against the Machine, where they argue that so many of the jobs today are going to be automated. So what's not going to be automated? What's not going to be automated paradoxically are the low-end, very low-end jobs uh, that involve doing things like cleaning. Uh, But the high-end jobs that won't be automated will be jobs where you really have to think and you have to put together factors in ways that computers are not yet very good at. So we want to protect the kids of the future from being automated away (laughs) in terms of their livelihoods and have them learn to engage in the kinds of thinking that will actually help them be able to do the jobs of the future. Let's talk about STEM for a second. It's an acronym that stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics. It's been an emerging emphasis in education for for a number of years now. But now uh, you and others have talked about adding an A into the acronym Arts to make love it and, steam. Love and steam. Love and steam. Go steam. <laughs> well, I actually heard something really 
interesting. Um, last week I was with a, a professor who teaches at uh, Thomas Jefferson Medical School in Philadelphia who told me that even for medical recruits now, they're recognizing that the kinds of analyses and thinking that goes on by designers who know how to put things together in new ways to solve problems that you hadn't thought about before – Wow, that's going to be a powerful way to have doctors diagnose your illness. So, yeah, you sure want them to have gone through the books and to recognize the illness when they see it. But if they come across something new, you also don't want them to be stumped. So these people at at, uh, Jefferson Med are transforming the entire curriculum to look at the power of designers not just memorizers. So when we say the arts and when we talk about creativity, we're always worried that people think, oh, I'm not a musician, I'm not an artist. Creativity, that can't be me. To the contrary, there have been books written now about how every profession you can imagine has a large creative component. So our students have to be ready to create in whatever environment they find themselves in. By one estimate, children of the future will hold 10 jobs, eight of which haven't been invented yet. So work on your multiplication tables. (laughs) But also become an artist. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Scribble. That's great. I will also take that home to my daughter. Yeah. Um, The way the book is structured, the way the six C's are structured, actually, is is that— they build on each other, yes. and then you also draw the reader through kind of four different levels right. um, of I don't know competency or, or, yeah. or skill in each yeah. of them. Like it's a very uh, it's a very accessible way to approach your model. Can you very briefly talk about how they build on each other and kind of what some of these levels? Uh, mean. So we have uh, six skills or competencies that we talk about, and we sort of build them from a kind of left to right. So at the basis is collaboration. You really do have to have relationships with other human beings in order to learn anything at all. You know, you always hear that a child will learn more in a classroom where he or she likes the teacher and gets along with the teacher. Collaboration, building the community of that classroom, the community and culture of your home. Next is communication. If you don't have collaboration, you have no one to communicate with. So it doesn't make a lot of sense. So having that back and forth communication, strong language skills is part of communication, listening skills, rhetoric, and writing and reading. Moving on to content, we revisit reading and writing and arithmetic, but we also have science and social studies in the arts and learning to learn. Moving again, we get to critical thinking. For if you don't have strong content, which you can't have unless you have strong communication, then it turns out you're not going to be able to sift through all the content that you have. You can liken it to going to the supermarket. You could buy everything off the shelf, hence content. But with critical thinking, you only buy what you need for the recipe that you are going to make. Saves you lots of time and navigation matters. Built on that, creative innovation, putting together those thoughts in a new way to make it yours, to have your own voice. And finally, going to the far end is confidence. Confidence to take intellectual risks. The confidence to fail and learn from failure, to have grit and persist when something is a challenge. Now, that moves it from left to right, but it also moves from bottom to top, and I'll just give you two examples. 
Let's go with collaboration. And I want you to understand that this model works just as well in the boardroom as it does in the sandbox. So let's go to your office for just a bit and explore collaboration. You know those people who sit in their cubbies and they never come out? They never want to work with anyone else. They are on my own, level one. And there's a lot of research about those kinds of people and the kids who do it just by themselves. But then you move to a level of collaboration which is called side-by-side or in the baby literature, parallel play. So I'm sitting in my cubby and you're sitting in your cubby and every so often I go over to see who's at the coffee machine and whether we can talk and I can find out what you're doing, but that's all I want to know about and then I leave. At the third level, there's a back and forth, sort of like a tennis game. I do something, then you do something, then I do something, then you do something. So let's go back to that office. I write a paper, but then I walk it over to you so you can make edits. And then you make your edits, and you walk it back to me so I can make edits on the edits. We didn't conceive of it together, but we are, in fact, sharing information. And at the top level, building it together. We thought about this project together. We wondered what it should look like, what it should sound like, and then together we come up with a plan. Now, just one more critical thinking. So critical thinking depends on content, as Kathy has just said, and it involves selecting and synthesizing information to cope with the explosions in information that we're all encountering. If your desk is piled with books and papers... You will witness in your own life the explosion in information that you need to sort among. So at the first level, it's seeing is believing. Somebody tells you there are alligators in the sewers under New York City, you go, okay, right, yes. Or Obama wasn't born in the United States, you might believe that too. So perhaps this is gullibility. But when you're a kid, you often do believe pretty much everything you're told. At the second level, we talk about truths differing and people recognizing that there are multiple points of view. So you may learn in school that Columbus discovered America, but then a little bit later you learn, hey, they were Native Americans who lived here all along. What do you mean he discovered America? But at this time, still learning is more memorization. We need to encourage children to question. That's how critical thinking starts if they question assumptions. At the third level, we have opinion, which is encapsulated by that expression, they say, which many of us use all the time. Um, At this level, there's still not that much respect for evidence and for science, but at least people are recognizing that there are many different ways to see a problem. Um, Think autism and vaccines. There are still many people in the United States, even though it was debunked, who believe that vaccines cause autism. That's kind of a they say claim. And at the last level, we have the ability to use evidence or mastering the intricacies of doubt. E.O. Wilson, one of my idols, wrote that we are drowning in information and starved for wisdom and that synthesizers will rule. That is so true. So critical thinking will lead us to the next breakthrough in any area when we're not satisfied with the status quo. For example, uh, in Delaware, there's a 
person who works on the hemorrhaging, the postpartum hemorrhaging that women in India have during childbirth. And they figured out a new therapy. They didn't want to accept the status quo. They figured out a new therapy to deal with that so that many fewer Indian women are losing their lives in postpartum hemorrhage. That wouldn't have happened without the highest level of critical thinking. You also make a very strong uh, point about critical thinking's role in our democratic society, which I think is especially apt uh, in this uh, hot political season. You want to comment (laughs) on that real quick? Yes. uh, Well, I mean, we don't question a lot and we don't question whether our politicians are even telling us the truth or they're not telling us the truth. I think we'd be much better off if we did and if we looked for real information and debated that information, if we respected each other's opinions and we asked for the evidence that could support those positions. Um, Because we don't do it, it just becomes he said, she said. And I think a lot of people, and I think we're seeing this in the current election for sure, are so turned off that they'll just go to alternative candidates rather than looking within the system. So it's even... Worse than that. Not that it could get worse, but it has. Uh, (laughs) Critical thinking has gone by the boards, and one of our candidates, who shall remain unnamed, engages in ad hominem arguments all the time, talking about people's appearance, talking about people's character and personality. And it is very, very upsetting to me that um, many people in America... Don't see that for what it is. That's not dealing with the issues. That's not dealing even with content, let alone critical thinking. It's just operating on a very low level. You know, it raises it raises another interesting question that I, I've heard bandied around, which is um, whether or not media should really be giving equal weight to those things that are scientifically based in those things that are not. So, for example, you could take climate change as one really good example. There, there is really clear scientific evidence to suggest that there is climate change going on. Now, to say that you don't believe it or that the media must then report the other side of the issue when that just is you know, bogus comments seems a little bit odd. So critical thinking isn't even endorsed at the level of high media, which is supposed to present information to the populace so at large. So here we are sitting in Washington, D.C., and what is <clears throat> terrifying to me is that there are many elected officials in our Congress who appear to operate at level three opinion. That is, they recognize, for example, that there are many people who are concerned about climate change, but they choose to deny the evidence. There was even a time when reports that were put out I'm getting crazy here. I have to be careful. When reports that were put out by the EPA about climate change were doctored to suit political ends. This is not the way our society will progress. If we put our heads in the sand and deny our problems and don't engage in the highest level of critical thinking and look for the evidence, we can't have a good outcome. But but what's interesting, you know, is that we demand critical thinking of people like our physicians, 
And then we don't demand the same level of critical thinking when it comes to our politicians. I know Daniel Patrick Moynihan famously said that you are entitled to your own opinions, but not to your own facts. Yeah, yeah. And now let's take a break for Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my Economic Update. There are a couple of basic approaches to figuring out what's ahead for the U.S. economy. One approach is to use a sophisticated computer model, one that uses past patterns and relationships to try and predict the future. The other is simply to try and answer a few basic questions. Now, the Federal Reserve uses both approaches, of course, but in a speech in Philadelphia the other day, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen did a nice job of identifying four big questions that will determine whether this year and next are good ones for the U.S. economy. Question one, will U.S. domestic spending continue to keep the U.S. economy growing even if the rest of the world economy is not doing very well? Janet Yellen says yes, but she did note a couple of worrisome developments. Business investment has been weak, and at least last month, the jobs numbers were disappointing. Employers didn't hire very many people. Question two, how will the rest of the economy perform? In our global economy, what happens on one continent is transmitted almost instantly through financial markets to other continents, and later through changes in economy's demand for imports. Now, financial stresses from abroad have eased lately, But we know that investor appetites for risk can change abruptly, so we're not out of the woods. There are a couple of really big question marks over the world economy right now. One is China. Can they manage their transition to a more domestically driven economy? And the other, of course, is the June 23rd vote in Britain on whether to leave the European Union. A vote to leave, Janet Yellen says, could have significant economic repercussions and not only on the British. Question three. Why is U.S. productivity growth so slow? Productivity, the amount of stuff we get for each hour of work. Janet Yellen doesn't have a clue why that is. She says economists are divided. Interestingly, she calls herself cautiously optimistic that the pace of productivity growth in the future will be better than it is now. She thinks we're suffering the after effects of the Great Recession. And unlike some economists, she does not believe that we have run out of new ideas, that innovation is slowing down. Question four, how quickly will inflation move up to the Fed's 2% target? Now, it's a little strange that the Federal Reserve is trying to raise inflation. For most of my professional life, the Fed was trying to do the opposite. But lately, the Fed has been unable to get inflation up to its 2% target. Some of that is oil prices. They've been very low. And Janet Yellen said she thinks over the next year or two, Inflation will return to the 2% level, but she warned that the new evidence that in financial markets and in surveys of consumers and businesses, that they are beginning to doubt whether the Fed can pull that off could really pose a problem to them. Now, there's nothing spectacularly original about these four questions, but they do have a nice way of succinctly capturing what the big macroeconomic challenges are faced by the United States today. Get the answers to these questions right and you will have a great forecast for what this year and next will be like. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Okay, back to the conversation with Kathy and Roberta. One feature of the book that I found really engaging and makes it even more accessible is that in each chapter, you offer recommendations on how Mm -hmm. we can take action personally and also for our children to achieve uh, the six goals, the six C's. Um, on On the... Sixth one on confidence. How can parents and educators foster confidence in children? So, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. No, sorry. All right. So, um, 
one of the things that we need to do is not insist on one right answer on standardized tests because then when a child fails, there's nothing further to do. What we want to encourage children to do is think about multiple answers and how would I have approached the problem in a different way. And if this is not happening in our children's school, we can do this at home. We can ask them to think with us about different ways to arrange their room. Can they draw a picture for us of a house that's upside down? What are the kinds of things that they can do to inspire confidence in themselves? The other thing is we don't want to tell them how smart they are. So there's been a ton of research by Carol Dweck, who has also written a book on this topic, that talks about how when we encourage children by saying, oh, you're so smart, and I'm sure I've done it with my own children too, um, what we do is we make them feel like it's a risk to try new challenges. So they are more likely to back off and pick up easier problems, which is exactly what the research shows. But when we praise children for effort, when we say, wow, you really tried hard, then they're more likely to try that next new difficult challenge. And I was just going to say that challenges can be a lot of fun, but you have to watch your reaction to those challenges. So if a child comes home with some sort of a broken structure that was supposed to be made out of balsa wood and you're disappointed, mm. or if a child brings an art project to you and all you can ask is, what's that? Instead of looking like you appreciate the lines on the piece of paper as he tells you it's a family portrait, mm -hmm. then you're not really encouraging them to try. And I think encouraging them to try and to persist on through failure is perhaps the best thing we can do as parents to help grow real thinkers who have confidence about trying. On the other hand, we don't <laughs> want to go too far. There's a guy named Joel Best at the University of Delaware who wrote a book about there's an award for everything. So it used to be that we just gave an award to the winning team when they played soccer. Now we proliferate. We give awards for everything. For participation. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So we really want our children to appreciate that uh, – Praise for effort is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't have to happen every minute because I think many of our children expect that. So one thing that courses throughout your model is play. Mm. What is the role of play in raising successful children? You know, play is a great metaphor, which really um, – as we sometimes say, is the crucible for all of the six C's. Think about it. When you're in that sandbox, you are generally collaborating with other kids, trying to make the sand pile higher and to make the most beautiful castle that you possibly can. You're also learning content. How many you know, buckets of sand is it going to take to build that wall as high as you need it? How do I have to communicate with someone else so that you can go get the sand and I can get the water to ensure that it's padded down just right. Critical thinking, confidence, all of these come into play when we are playing. So we believe play, in particular guided play, where you might have a goal in mind that you're trying to achieve, is a way of practicing these skills and many times at no or little risk to you. So that's the reason that you can have a lot of confidence is who cares if the castle collapses? Who cares if you're out on the beach and the wave comes? It doesn't really matter. You gave it a whirl and you learned skills while you were playing. So play has really declined <clears throat> in American society. 
Uh, by some estimates, as many as eight hours has been removed from children's week. That's serious because if you think for a moment about the free play that you engaged in, uh, some of that stuff got you in trouble, right? Uh, not me I, personally. Not, of course <laughs> not. Of course not. I went up on the roof of my six-story apartment building once and got in trouble. But these are the kinds of things that kids do when they're testing the parameters and figuring out what their limits are. And I'm not suggesting that we allow our children to go up to the roof. And but, fly. <laughs> <laughs> but I am suggesting that uh, play is a time when you figure out who you are and what you're interested in. It's an opportunity to reflect. But guided play, when parents and teachers interact with children and have a learning goal in mind and yet follow the children's lead in what kinds of information they highlight or talk about or what questions they ask, our own research has demonstrated that this kind of guided play with children leads to better learning than didactic instruction where we just tell them. That's so counterintuitive because you think, Oh, he's a little dumb kid. What does he know? I'll just tell him. Turns out they will learn if you just tell them, but they'll learn and be able to take it to new situations if you get their wheels turning and use guided play. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap up this conversation uh, as follows. I want to ask you both, what do this book and its approach mean to each of you personally? Kathy? Boy, that's a hard question. It I'm is not a sure hard I thought question. <clears throat> Well, this book actually is really important to me because I think it synthesizes the scientific literature in a way that is accessible. Um, Roberta and I have called this edible science, which is uh, accessible and digestible. And I believe that it shows us a new potential paradigm for structuring our educational system in and out of school and for connecting it with the workplace of today and tomorrow. Uh, there are a number of groups that are working on 21st century skills. And uh, in Skills for a Changing World, we want to be one of the umbrellas uh, for those other groups. This particular model is not only one that is scientific at its roots, uh, but integrative, holistic. Mm -hmm. So it demonstrates the breadth. It demonstrates how you can grow over four levels, over six competencies, and it distilled it down to one page with real examples and a real evidence base. It might look easy to get all that on one page, mm. But it took us six years Ugh. to get that literature <laughs> to get that literature in place where we thought there would be general consensus among scientists. Mm -hmm. I consider that an unbelievable achievement and uh, at a personal level. Congratulations. To you too. Um, but, but I think even more than a personal achievement, I think we needed a way out of what we've referred to as the learning illusion, um, the illusion that you're really learning just because you happen to get an A on a test. Mm -hmm. And I think if we can expose people to what learning really is, to how human heads really pick up information, 
we're going to have more engaged parents. Mm-hmm. We're going to have happier and more successful children, and they're going to be able to handle tomorrow's challenges. So I'm so glad you mentioned how long this book took because I feel like it has been a real challenge for us to synthesize all this literature. And I believe that our perspective as we wrote the book continued to change. Uh, For example, when we first started the book, uh, soft skills was a term that was used quite a lot. And As we worked on the book, we came to appreciate how soft skills is such a bad name for the kinds of foundational skills, like learning to learn, being able to control your impulses, being able to plan, being able to not get stuck in a problem and think flexibly, how these are absolutely crucial to how we all learn. And you can't learn without them. That's it's almost right. as if, That's right. what are you calling soft skills out there? That's right. And then they changed it, remember? Then they changed it to non-cognitive. Like, what's that? Unimportant? Yes. And these are the most important skills we have. So, so in a way, it's yeah. funny that our culture has kind of been bamboozled, that scores on a test in this narrow area is really what matters. When the psychological and educational literature say just the opposite. They talk about, sure, you have to have content, but if you can't massage the content, if you can't transfer it and take it to new problems, what good is it? You just learn stuff that's disembodied in a classroom. The other thing that I feel like I learned over the course of the book was how important being a member of a community is. When we first started the book, we were focusing more on issues with respect to the workforce because, as we said, this was the first time developmental psychologists and people in the workforce seemed to be saying much of the same thing. And we broadened it out because we recognized that that isn't good enough. We need to have good citizens. We need to have good people who want to help other people, who care, etc. So that it's been a real learning journey for me. And a second reason that I'm happy about this book is that in Einstein Never Used Flashcards, which was the last book we wrote, we tried to calm parents' fears. This is another attempt to calm parents' fears. Everybody wants their children to do better than they did and to exceed them. And With the schools, again, there are many wonderful schools, there are many fabulous teachers out there, but with the schools moving and changing as slowly as they do, we're kind of not capturing all the skills that kids need to succeed in the 21st century. So, and many, many parents can't afford to send their kids to Sidwell Friends, although that's the kind of education we want all our kids to have. So by writing this book, I think that we give parents many of the tools that they need, because we make concrete suggestions about what you can do in your own home that costs nothing to help your children cultivate these skills. So if we can ratchet down parents' anxiety level, I'll feel really good about that. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning, as Roberta just raised it, um, what's going on with parents out there? I'm just so sad for what the millennials have to put up with, because they should be enjoying their children. But they're so worried that, oh, my gosh, my baby just happened to turn over what's going to happen to him in the crib. 
Or I just saw, I couldn't even make this up, there's a, a new product that's a tampon-like product, which has a speaker on the end so that you can actually get information this is for real. into your fetus. Then there's, we saw this last year, of course, the tampon-like product, really, that it trumped everything. Everything. But, <clears throat> I saw that last, on, your, on your Twitter account. Did you? It yes. was unbelievable. But last, uh, I guess it was last year, was the porta potty with the iPad insert. So that way the child didn't ever have to leave the screen, even when learning to go to the bathroom. <laughs> so seriously, you don't have to do this to children. Um, we, were, we were called, in fact, we were in Argentina recently, and we got a call about how they wanted to put something in the crib to monitor the oxygen, the heart rate, and I even forget what else it was. And they said, how could it be a bad idea? <laughs> and we said, you're turning this into an intensive care unit. It's only a crib. <laughs> so I think we have everyone super hyped that if they don't do everything right in a rather mechanical way, right. that they're not going to be good parents. And one of the things I deeply hope for in the publishing of this book is that parents can understand that sometimes just being there, having a conversation, cooing at one another. And, of course, we go all the way up to when you get into the boardroom where you may not want to coo anymore. But but the point is there's a lot we can do to be supportive, good human beings and to raise wonderful kids who are thinking, who are creative, and who will also be responsible citizens. Well, I'm personally excited to take this uh, edible science back into my own home to my own wife well, and, and implement Great. it in our own uh, lives with we our family. We make house calls. Okay. okay I'll, uh, I'll keep that in mind. Um, I want to thank you both, Roberta and Kathy, for being on the show today. And you were both uh, participants in a uh, Brookings event recently yep. to launch this book. So I yes. direct listeners to visit the Brookings website to uh, listen to you talk about the book and talk about the science and the research. And also to follow you on Twitter at Kathy and Row one That's K-A-T-H-Y, the word and, R-O, the numeral one. Kathy and Roberta, thank you very much. Thank, thank you very much. This was fun. This is great. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to audio engineer Mark Holscher, who produced this episode. Plus, thanks as always to Zach Colzer, Carissa Nitschi, Bill Finan, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalah, and Rebecca Weiser, and Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. And if you haven't checked out our brand new podcast, I think you'll love it. It's called Intersections. Find it on iTunes and on our site at brookings.edu slash intersections. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.